Jesus enters Jerusalem not as a conquering king, but as the king already. Welcome to the Rooted Together podcast, the podcast which aims to root you in Christ through his word. Together, I'm your host, Charles Hegwood, and today we are in Matthew chapter 21. In Matthew chapter 21, Jesus approaches Jerusalem. The end is near for him. It's the seat of local power, and he enters as a triumphant king. As the king, he clears the temple so that all people will pray to him. The blind, the lame, and the children rightly proclaim that Jesus is the king. It is the ruling spiritual leaders who lack the ability to understand or rather submit to Jesus' kingship. They, like the fig tree, bore no fruit. They rejected the authority of Jesus and they desired instead to kill the Son. They have rejected the cornerstone, and in so doing, they are destined for destruction when they meet the Father. May we lay down all that we are and have to proclaim Jesus as the true King. And that is a very short synopsis of the entire chapter. But we have, and I broke it into two parts, part one, one through 17 here, and that's that Jesus is the king of kings. Jesus in this chapter is lifted up as the king, and we've talked about this from chapter one until now, that Matthew discusses Jesus within the context of three titles, son of David, son of Abraham, and the Christ. And here is where he represents all three of those. He is a son of Abraham. He is the son of David, more specifically the son of David, who is anointed and considered the Christ, the Messiah, whom they had been looking for for generations upon generations. He's lifted up as that king in this chapter in every aspect of the story. From the first verses, we see that Jesus is aware of all of the pieces. I mean, he tells his disciples to go into a city nearby. He tells them where they will find a little foal and what the people will say when they go get it and that they'll give it to them. I mean, the people will give to the disciples this foal for for him to use, for their teacher to use. And when they go, it's just like it had been said. Jesus knows where all the pieces are on the board. He's not trying to piece together a win here, and I want you to see that, to meditate on that, to chew on that, that Jesus is not fighting for the right to be the king. He already is. He knows where everything is going. He knows where everything is. Everything is well within his control. Nothing that will happen to Jesus in the following chapters will be outside of the control nor will it be outside of the will of God. And I want you to see that he is lifted up as the king in his riding a foal, a donkey. And there's some variation in the different gospels on that. So he likely had a donkey and a foal with him, and he rode on one or the other. And we, we often talk about that, riding on the donkey, but we'll look at that in a minute. His choice for a ride. 
He didn't choose a, a, the stallion of the conquering king. He could have chosen a stallion and ridden in as a king going to conquer for his kingdom. Instead, he chooses that foal. He chooses that donkey. Why? It's a symbol of peace. It fulfills prophecy from Zechariah. Jesus enters Jerusalem not as a conquering king, but as the king already. You know, the, the prophecy says, and he, Matthew quotes it there, Behold your king. He's not a conquering king. He is the king already, and the game is not to be won. The game has been won. He already is the king. He's already won. Therefore, he rides in on a donkey because it's a time of peace, even though he's riding in to die. He's riding in to say, I have already, I am already the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I need not ride in on a stallion in order to win that right. I already am that right. There's no fight needed. Then we look at the crowds. The crowds that surround Jesus are shouting, Hosanna and Son of David. They're giving credence to those titles that he represents. He is, after all, Son of David, the long foretold Son of David. He cleanses the temple. Only a king could do such a thing. Think of the Old Testament, how the kings would often clean out the fake idols from the temple and try to get their people back to true worship. Now, where they fail, Jesus ultimately succeeds. He cleans out the temple of all the people doing money transfers. They were making a mockery of the sacrificial system. And Jesus says, this is to be a house of prayer, not a house of thieves. He cleanses the temple as a king should and does do. He is the true king of kings. The difference is this, right? That Jesus did it correctly. He did it in a way that changes forever. And he would create with inside every one of his followers a pure and holy temple in which they would worship him. You see, the temple is not meant to be the center of worship anymore. No, he does clean it out. And he will say later, this temple will be destroyed and in three days brought back. He's not talking about the building. He's talking about himself. And he says to his believer, his followers later in this book, he says, wherever you are, there I am. I will be with you into the end of the age. He will go as the true temple, rightly proclaiming the right as a king to cleanse it and to keep it clean, to make it a place of prayer and seeking the Father. The children also adhere to Jesus as king. They proclaim him as son of David, rightly. Now, I love that little section because the children and the blind and the lame are coming to him, and he's healing them, and they're, they're praising Hosanna to the son of David. Now, who is sitting in the background very unhappy? It is the religious ruling class. In chapter 21, they're angry. Why are they angry? Jesus isn't yet directly commenting to them. It's just the fact that the lame and the blind and the lepers and the children are proclaiming the greatness of Jesus, and they don't like it, perhaps jealous. And what we see is that they are proclaiming that Jesus is king, and the religious leaders fail to submit to him as king. Even as the priests reviled him, though, it is the lowly who God uses to proclaim that Jesus is king. He doesn't need the high-ranking people. He usually speaks from the lowly. Now we look at part two of this. That's 18 through 46, a big chunk. These are parables for those who reject him, 
to reject, to submit to his authority as king. So we talked about those religious leaders who failed in the previous section here to submit to him as the king. They then go to him and challenge his authority. But before he before they, rather, challenge Jesus' authority, he's walking to the temple early in the morning. He sees a fig tree. He's hungry. It's an odd story. It doesn't have any fruit. And he curses it, and it withers. And the disciples are like, wow, how do you do that? Um, Now, here's the thing. How are we to understand the fig story in relation to everything else happening in this chapter? Well, it acts as a bridge. The children, the blind, the lame, the crowd— or proclaiming Jesus as king. The religious leaders are seeking to arrest him. They want him done, dead, out of the way. They are the fig tree. They are withered and producing no fruit. Therefore, they're cursed. And where do I get this from? Well, first they come to challenge Jesus' authority. Where do you get the authority to do these things that you're doing and to say these things that you are saying? Where do you get the authority to claim that you are the king? Well, Jesus tells them by not telling them at all. So that's kind of a funny way that he, he challenges them. And he says, well, let's look at this. Look at you. Where, where, do you where, where do you think John gets the authority? And he knows they know the answer. And what he's doing, he's relating the same authority, right? The authority that John had to baptize and to teach comes from God. Therefore, so does his. And the issue is they say, if, if we admit it comes from heaven, then he's going to ask, why don't we submit to him? Well, here's the thing. I think they understood on some level his authority, Jesus' authority, also comes from heaven. And they fail to submit to it and listen to it. And therefore they go away, afraid of the crowd. But Jesus is not done with them because they have rejected him as king. He gives them two parables, the parable of two sons. One says, yes, I'll obey, and doesn't. And the other says, no, I will not do what you want me to do, Father, but then later does. And then he relates that to saying, you are the son to the Pharisees, you are the son who says yes to God, but you don't actually obey him. And yet these tax collectors and these prostitutes and these people who have been thrown down by the religious elites are coming to me. They had rejected me early in their life, but they are coming to me and doing what the father asked later. And therefore, who will get the inheritance? It's the ones who obey, not the religious leaders, not the ones who say up front that I will obey. It's the ones who actually do it. And he, he's not done with them yet. He then rattles off another parable, the parable of a vineyard owner. And this is probably his most direct referenced to one from Isaiah. But as he is discussing this, he's discussing this vineyard that the landowner makes. And he sends his servants. That's the prophets. They are killed. He sends his son. They kill him, hoping they would get the inheritance by killing him. And he asks him what would happen or what should happen when the landowner shows up to these tenants. By the way, the tenants represent them. Well, the landowner should destroy them. And Jesus says, that's right. And they realize he's talking about them. And he relates to himself as the cornerstone rejected by the builders. Therefore, all who stumble on him or try to stumble over him will be shattered. And they are angry. Why? Because they get these parables. They understood very clearly that they were the, the tenants who killed the prophets who killed the son, even though they haven't yet killed the son, they will, and the father will destroy them. Instead of taking this as an opportunity to repent, they grow angry and seek to arrest him. But again, fear not God, but fear the crowds. 
but all the same, we'll put it on pause there as we go into the next couple of chapters. Look at the interplay between the Pharisees, the crowd, and Jesus. The crowd will continue to swirl around Jesus. The Pharisees will secretly plot to kill Jesus. But why? Because he gave them a parable. He said, this is you. The Father will destroy you. Here was their opportunity to repent and say, I will not kill the Son. And they won't do it. They seek to kill him even more. Why? Because he's the king, and they fail to submit to the king. Brothers and sisters, will we fail to submit to the king in our lives today? Do we need to pray that God remove the idols from our lives, that it would be a place of worship and not a place of thieves, our hearts and our minds, that is? Will we allow the Holy Spirit to cleanse our mind and our hearts, to rid us of those false worships so that we can worship him in truth today? Will we proclaim Jesus as king to the world around us, whether they accept or reject? Will we offer the gospel? Things to think about. Thank you for joining me in Matthew chapter 21. I look forward to joining you in Matthew chapter 22 next time. I'll see you there.